Good morning, everybody, and welcome to episode 12 of Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take a more in-depth look at some historical fencing sources. I'm your host, Michael Smorridge, and joining me today are our panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. Uh, what have we been up to in the last week? Johanna? I received Steve's new book uh, yesterday. They're pretty cool. Um, <laughs> Steve tagged me in a Facebook post yesterday where, oh, what's his name? Christian, just Claire, um, yep. talked about a female Schirmeister in Salzburg. Um, though it could be just her last name, I'm not sure by now. Um, but anyway, reading about Schirmeisters in Salzburg quickly like kindled my search for Hans Miedl. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been spending quite a lot of time again searching for that name. Um, I found a book covering common last names in Salzburg, and they also write about a Mendel family. And Mendel is a name that has um, always been quite interesting because there seems to have been a Hans Mendel who was acting as a fencing master in Salzburg around that time. And I found out that the Mendel family acted as executioners in Salzburg for many uh, generations. And I found another book. covering executions yeah. and executioners in Salzburg in the Middle Ages and in the early modern period. And I think I'll borrow both books from the library once I'm in Salzburg again, so on Monday. And I'm quite hopeful I find out something new about the uh, Schirmeister Hans Mendel on that track. We'll see. Cool. There's the, the famous book about uh, a German executioner's diary, isn't there? Is it um, Franz Schmidt? I really don't know. <laughs> okay. Uh, that was Nuremberg, not Salzburg, though. So I'll shut up. Okay. <laughs> but no, it's, it's quite an interesting book. Cool. Uh, Michael Chidester, what have you been up to? Well, I when I was in Chicago last fall, I stopped by the Newbury Library and I, I took photographs of a fencing manual they have there, a uh, fencing manuscript that's Dutch from 1595. And I finally this week got around to editing the photos and posting them on Wickenauer, along with transcribing them um, for everyone to see. So that was, that was a pretty neat. Uh, that makes four out of six fencing manuscripts in North America that I've seen now. <laughs> I got to catch them all though. And cool. the, the, the Getty is the big one that I haven't seen yet. It's a long way to travel. I've also, discovered when I was perusing the Wallace Collection catalog that they have a English translation of Salvatore Fabri's um, that was done in the early 1900s by a professional translator for Sir Howard Wallace or whatever his name is. And it's just sitting there and it's typewritten on a typewriter and everything. So I'm going to try and get scans of it to put on Wicked Hour because it should be public domain by now. Um, but I found out that we probably can't make that happen before it's the end of the year. But in preparation for that, I started transcribing Fibrous so we can have a transcription to go along with it. But very exciting. Someday we might have a free translation of one of the most important rapier man- uh, manuals. Cool. Just to dial it back a, a moment, what kind of weapons does the Dutch manuscript show? Does it fall into a tradition? Is it like... Um... Like the Spanish ones or like German ones? Uh, it's bizarre and interesting. It shows a short basket-hilted sword that could be a version of a Katzbalger. It shows rapier, rapier and dagger, rapier and buckler, 
Um, there's a play where a guy throws a hat on his opponent's face. It also has um, what it calls Dusak and Shield after the Turkish manner, where there are guys in ethnic clothing holding curved swords and shields with crescent moons on them. Um, and it shows Halberd and Pike. And it cuts off in the middle of a pike play. So you have like one guy holding half of a pike and another half of a pike sticking out near his feet. And it has only a short paragraph of text on each weapon and then a whole bunch of pictures. Okay. But yes, yeah, so it's incomplete and we don't know how long it originally was. But the, the artwork is very pretty. It's very colorful. There's really nice baggy Pluterhosen and other kinds of clothing. It's pretty cool. It's mostly interesting for its artwork, though. Cool. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Steve, what have you been up to? Not too much, really, this week. I did a little bit of fencing, but that's pretty much it. Nothing really on the research side of things. Cool. Sorry. Is this your first fencing since the plague started? I've I've done a couple one-on-one uh, -on -one meetups with people. Okay. But, uh, yeah, pretty recent. Pretty recent uh, eventuality, I guess. Cool. TQ is currently otherwise engaged, eating a pizza. So Good to be back. Ah, oh, hi, T. What have you hi. been up to in the last week, apart from having pizza? Uh, having pizza. Um, <laughs> the only moderately fencing-related thing I've done is uh, make the Lucien Gaudin cocktail, named after the last Olympic multi-weapon medalist. Uh, it's a rather good cocktail if you like Negronis. And that's is my research. One, the bitter one? Bitter. Very bitter and herbal. Mm. Uh, it's got Campari and vermouth and stuff in it. Uh, but pretty nice if you like that sort of drink. Cool. So that's my research tip of the week. Try drinking. I've been, um, I've been burn the candle at both ends like normal. And fencing-wise, I've had another little look at Gisliero and discovered that... Um, Somebody's already working on a transcription and translation. But then Mike found uh pointed out that a different version of the of the book has a different uh what's the word? Preface. So I gave that a quick transcription. That's been my fencing week. Oh and I hit people with swords. Cool. Alright, so today we're planning on covering lines forty-three again. Sorry, Steve. 44 and 45 on the crimp out, the, the crooked cut. Uh, Johanna, would you be able to give us those in German? Yep. Krump, wer wohl setzt, mit Schritten viel hau letzt. Hau krump zu flächen, den meistern willst du sich schwächen. Wenn es glitzt oben, so stand ab, das will ich loben. Thank you very much. And Steve, could you give us Harry's translation? Many cuts are plainly wrecked with a crump with... And with good steps. Cut the crump onto the flats and vex the master as well with that. If the blades should clash up high, step off and be praised by I. Thank you very much. Do you want to say anything about that last last line? <laughs> no, it's great. <laughs> I feel like, okay. like Harry was aiming too low with his uh, poetry there. Uh, okay. It's better than uh, I could do. Lichtenauer is renowned for his bad poetry, but I don't know. I don't think it's as bad as many people do. I tried to make a rhyming version of the title once, and it ended up 
looking like an eighth grader's poetry project. So, I oh, I, I have no, I have no poetic talent at all. I've made a few edits to Harry's when I use it, and that's about it. I can manage to do like maybe tweak one verse at a time. That's all. Okay. So the first of these couplets, forty-three. Am I right in thinking that that only appears in the Ringek version of the gloss? It only appears separately. You're the expert. Yeah. So 43 we actually did in the last episode as well. But the way this material is glossed changes between the Ringek and the Danzig Lu branches. Danzig and Lu combine this with the previous material about crumping to the hands and discuss doing that from a shrine cut uh, against a cut. Whereas Ringek uh, gives a gloss of this couplet that's focused on still features shrank it, but it's focused on cutting over the blade of an incoming cut um, and then working to a target from there. So you end up with, that's the reason it's been repeated here. It's not that it's just in Ringek, but rather that Ringek and Danzig Lev gloss this section quite differently. And so thematically, the Ringek gloss of this section fits with this episode quite well. Cool. So that couplet is about, um, what would you say, beating down a blade in Ringek? It's not super clear, but that's what it seems to be. So, Unfortunately, I'll, the Ringek gloss doesn't have a verb, which I'm sure yeah. Steve can talk about a bit more. Right. I'll, I'll, read, I'll quickly read a translation of it. This is how you shall set the upper hue, uh, set aside the upper hue with the crooked hue. Perform the technique like this. When he hues in above from his right side to the opening, step with the right foot onto his left side over his sword with the point upon the ground in the barrier guard. Perform that to both sides. You may also strike upon his head from the set aside. You can see that middle sentence there. Step with the right foot onto his left side over his sword. So you're probably not stepping over his sword. The next part implies that it's a sword action because you're moving into the barrier guard. So the the major implication is that you're coming down on top of his sword and like suppressing him. So okay. the grammatically, the over his third part doesn't really line up with the rest of the sentence, and it's assumed that there's a missing verb there. Right. Um, we have in Hans Madel, who, who quotes this section, he inserts the verb uh, fall over his sword, um, which may mean that Hans Madel had access to a... So th this, I, I should say, this this version or this section of gloss is only in the Dresden version, which is known to be riddled with errors and it pretty terrible manuscript. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so the garbage version is missing a word probably because a scribe made a mistake. And so Hans Madel could have had access to a better version of Ringek, or he could have just made a guess about what the verb he, that should belongs there was and inserted it. But his version clarifies that you should fall over his sword in the barrier guard with the point on the ground. Yeah, if I if I were to uh, make a guess at what the verb was, I think falling on top would probably be, you know, one of my top choices. <laughs> cool, because that's that's what it really seems to do. But as far as the as far as the technique goes, it seems to suggest that you're making contact with his sword and then just smashing it to the ground and actually putting your sword into Shrankut instead of cutting from Shrankut, as we saw last week. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the major interesting things about this play is the use of the word absetzen. So uh, the set aside is what that's translated from. So it's it's used twice in this passage um, at the end. How you shall set aside the upper hue and 
Uh, sorry, that was at the beginning. And at the end, strike upon his head from the Obzetsun. So, okay. this is, it seems to be a usage of the word Ob, uh, sorry, Obzetsun, which doesn't really line up with the definition of Obzetsun later in the text. Cool, so do you think this is like a a non-technical use of it here, or just a different technical use? Um, I think or it's the same technical use, and it's emphasizing a different. The thing which is emphasized is a different aspect to the thing we often think is I relevant here. Is yeah, I think the third explanation. It, it might point to the obsets and being only a small part of each of these plays. Cool, like the idea that perhaps the obsets and is the the act of redirecting um, and uh, driving as turning aside the action of their incoming action. And you can do that in a number of quite different ways, potentially. Right. So like the yep. thrust that we see in the Abzetsen plays later on might not be actually part of the Abzetsen, but just a technique you do after you finish the Abzetsen. Yeah. The, the other possibility is that there's a technical term, term and a general term. And here we're seeing like the general term for it. But I guess my, my question here would be if... Obzetsen is flexible like this, then what would be the difference between Obzetsen and Fazetsen, which is often translated as parry? If if I remember it correctly, um, there is the use of Obzetsen in a more general sense in the mounted uh, combat section of, oh god, I think Pseudo von Danzig as well, so they say Obzetsen um, when I, while well, reading it with my longsword brain, would say, that's not upsets at all. So I, I think there can be upsets in a more general way, um, meaning probably facets. I wonder if the... Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, um, I can't remember the, uh, the, the, the pony well enough to think of those specific cases, but that's possible. Sorry, yeah, go ahead, my rough answer would be that I think the distinction might be um, Absetson takes something and basically diverts its path. Because like, if you look at things like winding against an incoming cut or thrust, it's still coming forwards. You're just changing the line it's on so it's not facing you anymore. And you have a similar thing here with the idea of falling over a cut, where you're simply changing the line so it goes down to the ground instead of into you. Versus something that displaces or otherwise like forces aside the action. I don't know. It's I, I, don't, not... I don't know. I don't know if I fully agree with that because for, for the ox absets and you're kind of stopping them dead in their tracks, aren't you? I think that's an interpretational matter. Uh, yeah. Well, um, maybe especially if you do a Travis Mayot style circular winding where you carry their blade out to the other side, you're definitely not stopping them in any tracks. Uh, that's true. Hmm. So, so just quickly on an interpretation level, you've got the setup for this. It's they're doing a. Uh, expected attack directly to an invitation that you've made and then you're deflecting that attack would any of us normally crimp right down to, to shrank it to the point being on the floor? No. Yeah, generally I wouldn't um, the, we'll probably talk a bit more about this in a minute when we look at the other, the other glosses in this section um, but cutting all the way down to the floor does shut down certain potential continuations. If they want to try and cut around, that really stops being a thing if you've gone over their sword and down to the, down to the floor. So that's about the only upside to it. Okay. You'll just get snopping if you try it. Well, yeah. it depends. I mean, it, I think partly 
it mentions stepping forward with your right foot. So it might mean that you're aggressively closing distance to where you're passing this point. Yeah, and at that point, putting mean... your point in the ground will completely trap his sword. So what's and the follow-on to that? Just wrestling? Or no, no, it doesn't it's say just... wrestling. That's the weird thing. It's... Or yeah, you, it's... Could, you could do your cut to his head. Pommel strike. He doesn't well, it, says to, it says to strike to the head from the opposite. Side. Yeah, so you could you could cut him in the head. Uh, I think Fiore has a similar play that he calls breaking thrust, which ends up with a point on the ground. And from there, he does either a cut to the head or a pommel strike to the face. Hmm. Um, cool. Ringek doesn't give any clues, I think. No. Well, stuff Ringek. Just strike upon the head from the set aside. The, I, I could think this might also be something you would do against somebody who has their sword particularly low in their strike. Yeah, definitely. So not, whereas the next one that we're going to talk about would be against a higher cut, perhaps. Maybe. Low hand versus eye hands. Yeah, no, yeah no. I, I want to go all the way to the ground. And if someone tried to do that to me, I'd schnapp them. It's too much hard pressure. When you give someone hard pressure, they're going to react to it by cutting around. Although the flip side is that if you're, especially if their hands are already low and kind of at the same height as your hands, you can go all the way to the ground without really giving them more hard pressure by like letting your sword roll over, essentially. Yeah, but then you're not really pushing them to the ground, right? Yeah, well, I you guess, start... Well, actually, yeah, I kind of like the sound of that. Yeah, you, you, like, you, you start with the same crimp, right? But then instead of just staying flat on top, you like let your hands maybe lift very slightly or generally just roll down over. So you're pushing kind of down and behind a little bit. Yeah, but not really trying to wrench it all the way down. If the distinction makes sense, right? Yeah. Uh, if you're not doing a destructive parry, then you might be able to keep their sword in a place where it can't chop in very easily. Like imagine Mutieran. Like Mutieran goes over the sword, but it doesn't shove the sword down. Right. So it's crossed hands, not uncrossed. But you could you could see a similar idea, perhaps. I would like to try this in affecting <laughs> now. For a stretch goal, try and get them in the foot with it. A three point Yeah, how many how many uh least an hour points do I get if I do that? <laughs> I will buy you all the beers you want the next time we're at an event together in like twenty twenty three. Alright, well I have a video camera now, so I'm planning on videotaping all of my fencing. So hopefully I'll get that for you. Cool. Alright. Let's move on to to forty four. Should we do forty four and forty five together? Uh looks like the uh, one of the glosses is a little bit different to the others. Uh, yeah, Ringek again is the odd man out. All right, let's ignore Ringek. Let's do them together. Well, so, and I, th- I, th- I don't know if I made this point previously, but if you look at the glosses in general, they don't really agree about the Krimpa very much, and especially Ringek versus the others, but we're going to see in the next episode a place where Ringek, Danzig, and Lev all have different takes, and, and Danzig sort of tries to combine the two disparate ones. but and then and also. But so each, I think there's no section here where RDL all give you the same everything. This one comes closest, but Ring Egg breaks into two pieces and the other ones do not. So the looking at this next section, I'm going to just take the two couplets together because that's how Steve separated them in his book, which I just got today. So I'm excited about it. The basic action from a fencing perspective is to cut your crump down onto the flat of their blade, um, which you do against a master. That's probably an interesting point of discussion. 
And then from that destructive parry or bind or beat or however you want to put it, um, you can then either choose to thrust or to continue by cutting to a, an available target, the head, the body, both, whatever. It's a fairly simple high percentage action. I actually use this a lot in fencing, but it does have some interesting variations from the previous crumb stuff. One of them might be the footwork, uh, or more accurately, the lack thereof. All of the glosses for lines 42 and 43, or couplets 42 and 43, have emphasized a right foot step, a right foot spring. Um, and here we've completely lost that. Uh, there is no mention of footwork in any of the glosses. And I'm interested in people's takes on whether that's important or just something that they decided to stop mentioning at this point. I would say that logically it makes sense because with the previous one, you're you're not giving like the crump to the hands against the cut. You're not giving any opposition with the sword, so you need to get out of the way. And with this one, you are giving opposition, so you don't necessarily need to get out of the way right away. And it also makes sense with distance. If they step and you're not stepping, um, it makes a good... Distance should be right. Sorry? The distance should be right to... Right, yeah. That. Yeah. And then I guess you can fall into a step with your follow-up action, be it a stab or a cut to the header body. It's, it's interesting that this one goes... Uh, so that you can launch it from the barrier guard or just on your shoulder. Those yeah. are the two setups we had previously. Not quite, though. Um, previously, the cut against a cut is only described from barrier. In cutting against a strong side cut is only described in barrier, uh, from barrier. Whereas here, the cut against a strong side cut is being allowed from the shoulder. But the flip side is you're controlling yeah. the. So Ringek does it from the shoulder. Um, not against a strong side cut. Well, the sidedness is not mentioned here. I mean, I don't think sidedness is relevant. It's sort of unifying the previous sections where they tell you to use one or the other. Um, and here it's saying this is a general purpose thing, so use whichever one you use. T, I have a question for you. If, if somebody started uh, from the shoulder and hit a perfect uh, crump to the hands against a strong side cut... With the step out, would you call that a crump? Uh, yes, but I wouldn't necessarily call it a canonical crump. Fair enough. Man, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, unless we assume that ring X was an error, in which case it should be from the strong side. Yeah. Which it Maybe. probably was. I, I sorry, what did you want to say, um, Joey? Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, I think Hans Middle uh, mentions the step with the crumpo, at least with the first one, so the one to the flats. Hans Madel's crump howl is totally different, isn't it? Yeah, but it's out of at least, left field. yeah, it's it's a bit different. That's true. But um, when he talks about these uh, couplets, he says that you're supposed to um, step in after hewing the crump howl to the flats. But yeah, it's yeah, different. Yeah, after your sword is hit, his. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this this is the type of crump howl that I actually do in the fencing. And... Yeah. The it's interesting for me that the follow up is the sweeping up with the the back edge, the short edge of the sword. Whereas normally I might do an inverted rising cut with a long edge. The thrust I can never normally wind on particularly well. Um, but definitely when doing those follow ups, I tend to step in 
which yeah. isn't explicit in this text. So if we take the the description from the very end of the gloss that you should always step with winding, then we can assume a step is implied and it tells you to wind. Yeah, it also tells you you should always step with cutting. And it, earlier on it says that. Yeah, but that's, that's Gamina Lara. That doesn't count. This is in the winding section. <laughs> yeah, with the barrier. I'm um, sorry, when, when it's like introducing it with Shranka and everything, doesn't it say to step while cutting? Yeah, but so potentially there's a... Um, I have a. I basically agree with Steve about this, that the when you're using the crimp without opposition, it becomes very important to use footwork. Whereas yeah. when you're using it with opposition, you can adjust your footwork significantly because you have blade, yeah. blade opposition for cover. But when you're, when you're doing it without a bind, then you're just doing matrix dodging. Pretty much. <laughs> I normally actually possible. apply this technique with a slight advancing step of the left foot towards their incoming cut because I want to choke it down very strongly and get on top of it. Uh, and I use that to bridge. I normally have less reach than opponents, so I use that small step during their cut to bridge a little bit closer, so that my um, riposte action has a an easier time of hitting. Do you know what? If I fence Adrian today, which I probably will, he's uh, one of T's former students, and uh, very nicely subsidised this podcast a little bit. And also, uh, I was complaining earlier in the week that I fenced him, and I couldn't work out what he was going to do. And he was quicker and faster than me. Damn it. Um, I think I'm going to do, throw a load of crimp house because they're quite good at just uh, just dealing with a wide range of situations that might come up. Yeah. And that brings us to another point, doesn't it? It does. It brings us to the Dresden Anonymous fragment. Uh, this is oh. a... Nicely set up, Mike. I don't think that was intentional. But <laughs> <laughs> it actually works. Um, in the Dresden Manuscript, which uh, Chidester has just been uh, slandering as the worst thing in Hema with garbage quality. Oh, only an, the ring deck part of it. There's an anonymous additional gloss um, <laughs> that discusses some tactical choices about why you would use Zorna Crump um, as, a, as an action. And one we of the things... Say this, this anonymous gloss is only five paragraphs long and only covers the Zornha Ort and the Crypt of the Floods. Uh, I Zetson too. Yeah. What? But the one of the key things it says here is that when you're fencing with someone, if they're cutting straight down from up above towards you, you can use Zorn. And if they're when you fence with someone, whatever they strike at you that does not come right straight from high down onto you, then parry that with the crump. And this, like, because of the nature of a crump being a wider, more open kind of because of the way it covers space with your blade, it covers a much wider range of potential cuts and collects them. Uh, compared to something like Zorn, which is a bit more picky about this precise action of their angle of their cut. Would you parry its fair howl with a crump? Uh, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. I totally, if I'm marching on someone and they throw a uh, throw a twire while I'm trying to march in, I totally just crump right on top of it. Hmm. And then probably try and uncross for a short edge cut to do the twire, the cutting under their twire round thing. Makes sense. I actually am sort of of the opinion that the, the canonical counter to the fair, where it tells you to fall on their sword with the long edge, might be describing a crimp-ish action. That yeah. seems to make sense and work pretty well. Yeah, falling upon... If you're doing a fall... So, yeah. If you're falling yeah. upon someone in a low guard, um, who's on a low guard on their right side, yeah, you're going to have crooked hands. So if you go by the same definition of falling upon somebody 
then yeah, that would be a crumb. But that's that that uh, counter is fake news anyway. It's just from it's only in the uh, Fondantig. Yeah, which is yeah fake news. No, no love, no good. But if, but, but if it were valid, that's what I would do. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, crumping against its fair, I think, would be good. Or even coming all the way on top and stabbing down below, coming all the way over top. Because then you rob them of the ability to cut around with their next fair. Like if you go all the way over into Shranko, right, and stab them in the foot. <laughs> no, you're just going to get stoppened. <laughs> You'll just immediately get stoppened if you try to do that. I, I want to see you stab someone in, in the foot with a crimpow against their fair. I will buy you all the drinks you want if you do that. I'm just going to have to film my fencing later today. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Um, so yeah, it's a really interesting um, uh, this Dress in Anonymous gloss is a really interesting little bit of material because it's one of the few things which talks about the like one of the classic problems in trying to teach some of this material is why should I make the choice why should I use this action or that action um, and one of the first ways to ask that question is well I'm good at this one so I'm going to use this one and that's a perfectly reasonable answer um, we see in modern fencing that that's often the way people decide between potential solutions to a problem is I'm good at this parry, so I'm going to use this parry against everything. Uh, but another possible action, another possible answer is that there are other differences, like the difference between a, a very straight cut and a cut which might be more curved or more crooked or at different angles. And crimp as a parry tends to work quite well with a wider range of incoming actions. So it can be a really useful default or response parry um, on, on people for this, re for this reason. One thing that I'm noticing here is that this crimp as a beat to the flat of the blade is being used versus a cut and not versus a thrust. How do we feel about crimping against an incoming thrust? Uh, I think it depends. Well, let me think. I think <laughs> if they're thrusting an ox, I think it's probably better. If they're just shooting straight in, I don't I'm gonna think... I'm going to say you should just shield instead. Right, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Right, which is funny because I, I often hear the crimp being described as the technique you should use against someone in long point, and that's something yeah. that I would never ever advise or do. That's not uh, written anywhere. Exactly. That I know and, of. And I mean, even the reverse, the reverse of it is, uh, I've taught it too, but it definitely like is not the canonical solution. And in some ways, the reverse of it is described in the next episode. What if you crump all the way down to Shrankhood, though? They're just going to disengage point. and stab you in the forearm. No, they can't disengage. <laughs> You've gone down to Shrankhood and hit them in the toe. They That's can true. disengage around the other direction, right? Um, <laughs> they can zoom them back here. Yeah. More... You stab through their toe into the ground and pin them there, like that Rast <laughs> uh, play. They can still stab, stab you without stepping, though, so... Yeah. yeah, but at least their foot will hurt. <laughs> so more... On a more kind of on a less textual analysis level, um, cuts and thrusts have some differences. And one of the things about thrusts is that they're it's a lot easier to adjust the exact position of the blade on a thrust than a cut. Um, a cut is kind of committed to an arc, especially if you're pushing on somebody, drawing an invitation, or yeah. pushing into their space to make them kind of cut in a hurry. They tend to be somewhat committed to one path, and that means that swiping through it and controlling that path really strongly displaces the cut. Whereas with a thrust, a thrust is committed forward, but the 
the ability of a fencer making a thrust to change the position of the point and the exact line of the point is quite high, even very late in the action. So biting on it with a crump makes you very prone to disengages or other such responses. The flip side of which is the, the Edel Krieg, the Noble War play, where you're in, is it that or is it Long Point? Anyway, you're in Long Point and they try and beat it aside. That's literally the, the situation I'm trying to describe from the other point of view. And the answer to that is just stab them anyways because their sword isn't threatening you. Exactly. Um, like while I'm thrusting forwards, I can track my point into to like sneak under your hands or work in under your blade or something. When I'm cutting, retargeting and re readjusting the path of my sword is more difficult, which helps kind of. So I think in general, crimp is best against cuts. And what it, the way it disrupts with and interacts with their blade is better against cuts. If you do manage to crimp a thrust, like you'll wreck it, obviously, but it's a lot harder to make the get the blade engagement. Cool. I think maybe as like an oh shit type thing, it might be okay. But at that point, like you just do a parry. You just fall onto them with your long edge and parry it, and then be ready to parry their next attack, which is yeah. probably cut around. I mean, I crump as my ship parry anyway, so I'll do it in that circumstance, but I won't do it kind of intentionally. It's not my goal. Something I find interesting about this section is the discussion of doing this against the masters to weaken the masters. Um, does anyone have thoughts on what that might mean? Well, obviously you can only do the technique on people who have been approved by the guild. Probably it. Hmm. <laughs> well, later on in the... Um... When they talk about Indus, they say that anybody who can feel and use Indus is a master of the sword, and everybody else is a buffalo of the sword. So maybe you're using it against somebody who you know can use feeling in Indus. Yeah, and from that perspective, the idea of cutting into the flat of their sword gives you a kind of a sharp percussive bind where it's much harder for somebody to wind cleverly or something. So that might be a nice, a nice advantage. You also see masters described in the Zukan section offhand. Yeah, yeah. the The person who can uh, who will remain in the bind and see if you will withdraw or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the... I guess in that case, it definitely seems like a master is somebody who knows what they're doing. Yeah, Hannah. Yeah, um, I've always interpreted it as. Um... Um, the masters for and uh, no, the masters of the bind. It it took me ages to realize that it could just be any masters, but I always interpreted it as um, uh, fences who are really good at winding and binding. But no, I don't think it's uh, that's the case. It's just masters generally. And it could just be a poetic thing saying this is a really good technique. Yeah, it could just be a reflection of the settle gloss. Or yeah, the Zettel but then first. The question is, why did they use that specific word in the Zettel? So it just that just pushes the problem up one level, right? Because it's it is the last word of the line, so maybe they mm. needed something that rhymed. No, it's it's it, not the last word. Fn is the last word. Weaken. No, I, I thought it was fleshing and sweshing. Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. Fleshing, yeah, not Fn. Sorry, yeah. Fn is another one. Fleshing and Fn, yeah. My bad. So, yeah. so I guess it was deliberately chosen. How many times masters used? Let me just um It's pretty rare. Um and most of the times, times it's 
most of the times it's used, it does seem to describe someone who wants to play in the bind, as Joey was saying. So <laughs> I think there, I think there is something to the idea that this is somebody who like you might. This might be something you pull out against someone who you know has good bind play. So if you cut, if you try and cut a Zorn or something, you reckon that they're going to be able to counter wind you efficiently, and instead you just smash the flat of their sword with a crump, and then good luck to them doing any feeling. It looks like it comes up at least a dozen times. So three times. Uh, I'm I'm just doing a quick search through Lev's gloss because that's the only source I care about. Um couple of times in the general introduction where it's like if you want to be a master and then um it appears a few other places like the three wounders remember that in all and my stone viltus i oh yeah so there's that there's cricket to the flats in the token you should um, use token and all encounters if you want to fool the masters so similar construction then my stone viltus and yeah, it seems like um, master is is often paired with that word ethan, which is like to fool, or I think it's um, the cognate to is ape. like to ape, yeah. So like yeah. you're making an ape out of them. Yeah, and that like it definitely also fits a little bit if you have a if you compare it with some of the stuff in the Foolin and Indes thing, where like somebody who isn't a master doesn't use this in their fencing. So you might have this idea that there's like. Buffels who fence with speed and power and without Fulan. And then there are monsters who fence with Fulan from the bind. And so you have techniques which are good against one and techniques which are good against the other. Mm -hmm. And that kind of ha actually hangs together quite nicely as an idea. Seems legit. All right. Is there anything else that people would like to bring up? Yes, there is. Yeah, I have a. <laughs> you go first. <laughs> I was going to raise a follow up. Um, of cutting versus thrusting. And this yes. is one of the few places where it seems to give us open response, where there's no recommended guidance of which one's better. It just tells you to stab him from this um, bind, or if you don't want to stab him, then cut him instead. And it's always interesting when that comes up and there's not a specific action recommended. Yeah, I think one of the ideas of that was the uh, the Fexula type idea where if you don't want, if you're not in a position where you want to stab him then uh, do a cut instead. Yeah, wasn't, so, there, wasn't there something from the uh, Latin Lev also? Right, so when we were talking about this earlier, I mentioned that in uh, in Paulus Hector Meyer's Latin translation of Udlev, right, so we, we should preface this with saying that this is somebody representing the technique as it was explained to them or as they understood it. Um, but it's interesting because they actually insert a phrase that's not present in the German, um, which even more emphasizes the free choice aspect of it. It essentially says, um, on the other hand, if you don't want to dig, by which it means thrust, insofar as you were able to make your decision with judgment, then in the bind you should attempt to wound the head. So it, it, it specifies that you're not, it's not just a chance thing, but you actually are deciding which one you want to use, ideally, um, which is intriguing. And I've heard the argument that this is an instance of trying to comply with rules about when thrusting versus cutting is appropriate. But the fact that this is very rare in the gloss is 
interesting to me. There's only a couple of plays that seem to give you the freedom to choose which of the wonders you use. And I wonder what's special about those few plays. I mean, one of them is using the Abnehmen versus Bishter Kervide versus Duplirin, perhaps. Um, and another one would be this case of you have to decide which one's better. <laughs> and it doesn't specify what criteria you'd be using to decide that. Yes. Are we gonna okay? So another thing? Go for it. I was just gonna add one last detail there, which is that the idea of picking your continuation action by the context is something that comes up explicitly actually in a number of other non-RDL sources. LeKuchner does it a lot. And also even in things like the Glasgow um the Glasgow uh anonymous messer, uh pretty much every play there finishes with your choice of a cut or a thrust. It's very rarely specific about which one you should be using. Maybe the better question is why Lichtenauer is usually specific. In Perhaps other yes. How do you guys do, by the way, the uh, the strike here, the short edge strike? Because the way I do it is I kind of come up and do like a Tsverhau kind of thing, either on the top or on like the their left ear or something. So when I teach this, I say that you can either do a, like a rising short edge cut and sort of hook back with the short edge, um, mm -hmm. which ends up hitting the right side of the face. Or you can kind of come around and down with a shield style cut and drop the short edge onto the top of the head. Or that yeah. you can uh, come all the way around and do a turret style cut and drop the short edge into the left ear. Or even that you can like uncross and cut down to the arm, either arm or something. I think that my preference is usually a strike in style short edge cut where it's all just sort of wrist action. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the one I do by default is basically a fair. Yeah. I find doing the it's fair style, it's the action itself is not very much different than doing the winding. So if they're kind of trying to follow after my sword and like come with me or like rise up and like do a schnappen or something, then doing that sphere style strike sometimes ends up like with a stab anyway, or it sometimes ends up, I guess, kind of locking there. You get like kind of a sphere under its fair situation, but yeah, if they do stay low and you do the tsver, then they have a free afterblow to your belly or your forearms. So I guess pay Something. attention to your opponent. Some which is also a thing about the way you do your follow-up here is that it's which hand you drive the follow-up action with makes it easier to do the cut or the thrust. I think I picked this up from some conversations with Peter Johnson at some point, where people talk a lot about pivot point swords. Where like when you you know you move the sword, there's a certain point on the blade which will state which the rotation will kind of happen around. And there's a lot of stuff you'll see people talking about how the pivot of the lord needs to be at the tip and stuff. But the detail which is often missed is that the pivot point is determined by where you you are applying force to the handle of the blade. So and there's a mathematical relationship with the distance from the distance from where you push on the handle to the point of balance multiplied by the distance from the point of balance to the pivot point is a constant number. So the further back on the handle you push, the further back on the blade the pivot point moves. And what you can do with this is if you've just done a crimp across their blade, if you pull with your rear hand, which is much further away from the point of balance, then the blade will tend to rotate somewhere around its middle and the point will come into presence very quickly. Whereas if you drive more with your front hand, the point will sweep around and do more of a cut. 
Mm. So it's about the same motion, but you're driving with a different hand. Yeah, something as simple as pulling the hands in exactly the same way, changing which one is kind of being the driving hand, will significantly change the way the sword behaves in this action. Hmm. I'll need to give that a go. Uh, which is actually a pretty cool little variation. There's a really nice uh, like graph you can draw about how all these things will be related. Um, but it's yeah. a very simple kind of trick to understand. Applying it in fencing is a more interesting I'm, problem. I'm having trouble picturing this in my head. I wish you'd um, make a video at some point. Yeah, I'll curious. try and put it on video once stuff starts up again, I guess. Sure. Um, but or, that's like a very useful video. Yeah, it's a fun little trick. The other thing I want to mention quickly on this episode, just jumping in before Steve finishes, I guess, <laughs> is that especially with the Dresden anonymous gloss we talked about earlier, I often teach people to use this with an idea related to a modern fencing strategy called pursue, where you're pushing forward but expecting that potentially the opponent will attack first. Um, and if you're doing this, as you push towards them, uh, you go through range distances, the very long distance. The only attack they can make is a fully extended straight attack, so Zorn becomes effective. And it fits well with the anonymous Dresden description of Zorn, where they're cutting straight down towards you. Uh, as you get a little bit closer, they start to have a much wider range of possible angles. And so then Dresden's Dresden Anonymous's description that you crump uh, anything that doesn't come right straight from high. Uh, down to you becomes useful because you can cover pretty much any possible cut they try and throw with the same crump. What's really nice about this is that it takes away some of their decision about when the action is going to happen, and it tends to mean that their cut becomes more direct and less likely to be a compound attack. So a destructive action or a beat parry or something like a crump might be is less risky because it's much harder for them to exploit the weaknesses of that kind of action. Especially if you go all the way down to their toe. <laughs> okay. <Potentially>, yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I just have I, I have two small things that are kind of uh, food for thought here. The yeah, first one is when it when it talks about doing the follow up in Danzig and Lev, uh, not in Ringic though. It says, uh, "Wind your short edge at his sword indes against your left side, or hew him indes with the short edge." So they use the word indes here, but as as it's described later, it seems like it's uh, connected with with fulin at the at the sword. So you feel soft or hard, and then act indes. What do you want to do? But in this case, it seems to be like the action seems to be just a movement that you're doing as soon as the uh, swords make contact. So it doesn't really seem like there's any fulin going on here, and yet they still use yeah. the word indes. Oh, okay. I could understand it for the for the wind to stab, but it definitely seems to me like you're beating their attack and then cutting up from that beat, and that's not really happening. Meanwhile, well, there's definitely still a bind there. The blades clash together. Right. You could understand that to mean that as soon as there's a bind, then you have the ability to be in this. Yeah, it, it just seems like the. The normal understanding of indes is you're doing a uh, eyes open technique, like you're figuring out what to do based on the bind. And in this, it seems even though there's there is a bind going on, it seems like an eyes closed technique, where you're just going to do what you're going to do. Is it though? Because there's also clear evidence of you making a conscious decision. 
Which, well, if anything, would, this, this is the, the strongest case for an eyes open attack when it tells you you have to decide here which one is better. Well, I guess that's a difference in the way I looked at it because I always looked at, at that as a decision that you make before you even enter the bind. You hmm. say, like, I'm going to do a crump and then I'm either going to cut or I'm going to do a crump and then I'm going to stab. Hmm. But maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe the, um, the in-desk decision is based on... So that would answer our question of the personal choice thing. Mm -hmm. But then that would raise the question of which one is the hard option and which one is the soft option. Yeah. So the other thing you could be doing in DES is it's not necessarily about potentially perceiving soft or hard, but perceiving which opening is becoming available. And like you're cutting up from, so the, the in DES decision you're making as you're cutting up from the blade is about the path you're going to take and the target you're going to cut to. Hmm. Like if you feel them lifting up, you might cut down on a lower angle to cut towards the arm or something as they come up. Whereas if you feel them staying low, you might keep the hands low and cut to a high target instead. Are there other cases of indes being used that way? Or are we expanding the definition of what kind of things you're feeling? Well, I'm just I'm basically using it with the idea that indes is how you feel which opening to move to. Mm -hmm. Which is implied right, in the general at the beginning. Hmm. And in the noble war stuff as well. The idea that they're powering and you're feeling in as what the new opening is and going to it. Could be. I like that idea. Okay, one last thing. So at the very end of this gloss, it says in Danzig at Lev, it says uh, Hugh Endes with the short edge to head and to body, or to head or to body in uh, Danzig. To me, this sounds like a callback to the uh, the Zek. So, um, you know, you nearing what you want, no change comes to your shield, to head to body, don't yeah. abandon the light hits. So, just kind of uh, food for thought there. Is it like, is this a callback to the Zek? Because we don't really get any references to that. We don't get any direct references to it, um, unless you're reading Hans Madel. I'm not sure. I think it's just... It, um, they're both on the line that you'd yeah. be cutting up along. Could be. I haven't put that much thought that? into it. It's just Sorry. strange wording because it says to head and to body. I don't know. Yeah. Sounds weird to me. Joey? No, I just wanted to agree with Steve. So the wording is pretty similar. So maybe it does mean. Yeah. In general, anytime there's a like an overlap in phrasing directly back to a piece of settle, it's probably safe to at least entertain the idea. It's a deliberate callback. Sure. So we're Which doing is interesting because the Zek doesn't talk about striking the the head in the gloss. That is true. Well, that's the initial attack. The initial attack is to cut near to the head and to body, and then once they parry, then you do the Zek. So it could be a case of just using parallel phrasing because they like to use parallel phrasing. Yeah, that's certainly a possibility. Does anything anybody have anything else to add, or should we wrap this up? No? Okay, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for listening to this, episode 12 of Fencing by the Book. I've been your host, Michael Smorridge, and our panel have been Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. Thank you all for listening.